members of the new Bath Centre for Pain Research celebrate its launch. The lecture is introduced by Professor Chris Eccleston, the centre's director, and includes an address by Dr Lindsay Cohen and talks by Dr Lance McCracken, Dr Candy McCabe and Dr Ed Keogh. Uh, my role here today is really as a warm-up act. So I'm just going to try and get you going, okay, so just for five minutes and encourage you to participate. This is a celebration. It's also about questioning, about ideas, about asking, I know many of the people in the audience, asking you to use your experience to, to ask questions of, of us here. Uh, but as a way of preamble, then, why, why pain? Why have a center for pain research at all? It seems a little odd. Pain is uh, ubiquitous. And I'd say, well... There are a number of reasons for that. Uh, in short, you were born in pain. And if you didn't scream in pain as the first of your, your first um, observable behavior, then probably some burly nurse slapped you on the backside till you did scream in pain. You're quite likely to die in pain. Okay. Even in this Western medicalized cold. How am I doing with the warming up? <laughs> Is that going all right? Um, even in our Western medicalized culture, you're quite likely to die in pain. And throughout your life, you will have many painful experiences, some uh, episodes, some acute episodes. And if you're over 40, then, um, I'm sorry, <laughs> but the bad news is that you might actually uh, uh, have um, develop pain on a, on a frequent basis. Okay. So that might be the bad news. There is some good news. Okay. And the good news is that pain, in some senses, is our friend. I'm not going to spend the next hour or even five minutes trying to convince you that pain is a good thing. But I think, as um, I was reading recently, the long-distance runner and novelist uh, Haruki Murakami said that most of the, of the important lessons that we learn in life are accompanied by pain. In some ways, it travels with us and it teaches us things. But that's uh, rather philosophical. But the reason I think that, that we're here today is that much of pain that we experience, and certainly much of the suffering that we experience as human beings, is treatable. We do have ways of dealing with it. And in essence, that's partly what we're here for, is that can we find in our own research track ways in which we can help people learn how to live with, how to tolerate, how to live valuable lives with pain from birth to death. It's a noble cause. Many of the people here are evangelical about what they do. And many of the people here also, uh, you'll, you'll hear some presentations from psychologists, and I just want to give a warning there. What we're not talking about here is that somehow this is pain that we're imagining or people are imagining. This is very real pain that we're talking about. We're talking about most of the people we deal with, with uh, conditions from painful diabetic neuropathy to um, chronic uh, rheumatoid arthritis to osteoarthritis to cancer-related pains to pain on procedures, uh, medical procedures to immunization. We're talking about medical everyday pain, not unusual pains. So, although it might sound like a little bleak, could I say, in this presentation, a lot of the news here is good. We're passionate about it because a lot of what we want to do here is to develop new methods to develop new assessment tools, to investigate mechanisms, that is, the reasons why people might be in pain in the first place, to understand how we might bring new treatments and new methods to bear 
but also to increase access to uh, those treatments which are already effective, but people don't necessarily have access to them at the moment. Um, who funds our research? Well, uh, the standard people fund our research, the research councils, and I want to say thank you to them, in particular to the Engineering and Physical Sciences Research Council, to the Medical Research Council, to the Economic and Social Research Council, who are the main funders of, of our work, but we also work with industry uh, where it's relevant and they fund our research. And we also um, are dependent upon donations and uh, legacies from people who support the work that we do, and we've been very lucky to... Uh, in recent years to um, benefit from a number of leg legacies. These are important to us because they allow us to support students, the new generation of research workers in pain, and they allow us um, to be innovative and ask new questions. So thank you to them. Thank you to all of those people. Okay. So who are we? Just quickly, we are, uh, we are an interdisciplinary research unit. We have medical staff, we have physiotherapists, we have occupational therapists working with us, we have uh, nursing staff, and we have psychologists, and we have a range of different medical professionals. Today, I have asked a number of uh, four of our colleagues to present briefly on their work and to focus on their work. And um, really, the last thing that is left to me to say is to say thank you for coming and spending your evening helping us launch uh, the next generation of pain research at the University of Bath. We're in a good state. We're in a good place. We have some excellent people. We've been building to this point for some time, and we're excited about the future and the things that we're able to bring to bear in terms of pain research um, for people suffering at the moment. So the first thing I'm going to do is say thank you, and then I'm going to pass over to our first speaker, who is Dr. Lindsay Cohen. I've um, asked Lindsay to start because he's actually our David Parkin Visiting Fellow, something he'll say a little bit more about and introduce to you. And he's been spending a year with us from Georgia State um, University in the U.S., and he's going to be um, presenting, as you can see, on a dose of denial and distraction for painful pediatric procedures. Lindsay. I uh, just to uh, continue with acknowledgments. Um, I'm here as the David Parkin Fellow, and if you know David Parkin, he um, received his PhD from the University of Bristol. Then he came to University of Bath in geophysics in '68 uh, as a lecturer, and in, he became a, later a senior lecturer. And in '87, he established a trust in his mother's name, Esther Parkin, and his idea was to have money to invite visiting faculty to stay on campus and help fund their visit. He also funds, I think, roughly six students a year in a fellowship. He's an incredibly generous man. I've heard interesting anecdotes from trustees. We've had several gatherings, and the trustees have passed on stories. But David Parkin was the sort of man in a class, if a student was having a difficult time, he might talk to them for a while and even um, give them money, no questions asked, just to help them through difficult times. The Parkin trustees have really been wonderful to my family and me in helping us find a home here in Bath. Um, we've had several social gatherings over the Parkin residence, and I really want to acknowledge and thank them, too. Here's a picture right here of my kids guarding the Parkin residence, which is right on campus. That's not from today. You notice the weather. Um, I also want to thank Professor Chris Eccleston and the, my colleagues at the um, Pain Research Center as well as at the Mineral Hospital and the Pain Services Center. These folks have provided a professional home for me Like immediately upon coming here. They've been welcoming me in and provided their expertise and their warmth and their data and um, time and have really allowed me to have a 
both a professional and a personal home immediately upon arriving in Bath last August. I um, also want to mention the Mayday Fund and the National Institute of Health that have fund research projects that help me um, support me while I'm here. And my home university and the students in my research labs at home that are keeping some of the research we're doing back at home moving along. So I'm going to quickly tell you about pediatric psychology, which is my area of research. Specifically, what I do in that area is pediatric pain, and I'll talk about that. And then I'm going to integrate my area of research, which is acute pain, with what I've been learning and experiencing here in Bath. So pediatric psychology kind of falls here in between clinical child psychology and pediatric medicine. So you might think of pediatric medicine, for example, diabetes. But clinical child psychology, you might think of an adolescent who's trying to fit in with his peers. If you have an adolescent with diabetes who's not wanting to eat his particular diabetic diet and is going out and trying pizza and different things with his friends, he might have some psychological issues, and that's where pediatric psychology may step in. My particular focus is pains. Pain can be subjective and can have a number of psychological components, and that's what I'll tell you about today. So um, in specific, for the last um, probably more like 15 or 20 years, but I said 10 years, um, I've been studying distraction for pediatric pain. And let me just start by saying injection pain is a significant issue. I had a colleague when I first, my first um, professor job, and he came up to me, I think it may have been the first week I was there, I was hired, and he said, what's this, you study children's pain, like injections? They cry for a few minutes, they may scream, what's the big deal? And the truth of the matter is, it is a big deal, and there's research that's come out recently showing that there's behavioral, emotional, and long-term effects, and even physiological, showing that untreated pain in neonates or infants might have neurophysiological changes that alter how they um, respond to pain later. They can be more sensitive later. Parents may not bring their kids in for important immunizations if there's high pain. Um, Kids might develop long-term negative attitudes. There's data to support this into adolescence, and they might skip going to the doctor, and they might skip going to the dentist if they've had pain, awful experiences when they were children. So it is an important area. So in the series of studies, um, what I'm going to talk about today is looking at distraction for young children's injection pain. So first of all, so we're all on the same page when I go through the studies. The assessment that we do in my lab, because pain is an internal, personal, subjective experience, and then with kids, it's always a little bit tricky trying to figure out what they're experiencing. We always do ask them about their pain, and you might be curious how you do that. This is one common scale. It's called the faces scale, and it's, as you see, a series of faces, and you ask the, kid, the child, you know, how was that needle injection? How was that lumbar puncture you just had for a cancer child, for example? You can also ask the parents. So this is, these are called visual analog scales. And this question number four down here, how much pain did your child experience during the procedure, they just make a mark like that. And you can measure the line 10 centimeters, 100 millimeters, and get a um, quantification of pain. And then we always videotape and do behavioral coding. So this example is just one um, coding sheet. And what you see here is this is nurse behavior and a circle distraction. So every five seconds, you could, when you're watching the video, you could make a little mark saying, okay, the nurse did a distraction behavior. You have to define it clearly. And you just go along. You can tally up the, distri- the distraction the nurse has done. At the end of the day, you know how much distraction has occurred. You could also look at other things. Um, behavioral coding is quite flexible. So you can look at, in the children, you might look at screaming, crying. You might look at how often they're engaging in the distraction um, there are other things you can look at. For example, you might look at parent distress. So you see some behaviors here. The baby's not really having much of a problem with this needle. But dad there, 
is exhibiting some behavior that might be of interest. Okay, the first study in this line um, was back in 97. I'm going to start with the first one. And this was looking at distraction for preschoolers. Preschoolers, four to six-year-olds, before they start school, they have to receive a series of injections, um, immunization injections. And so what we did is we randomized the children into three groups, which I'll call nurse, which is simply we asked the nurse to distract them with a movie, a movie of their choice. And the nurse throughout the procedure would say, what's going on in the movie? Tell me what's, look at that. And she would pause and point to the movie. And we had her really animated, really engage the child in the movie as much as possible. The second condition was the same thing, but we also trained the parent and the child. We told the parent to do the same thing. This was a more extensive um, intervention. We were curious to see if it was necessary to do all of that. It's more costly and time-consuming. We were hoping that the easier one might be just as effective. And then control, just let the nurse do her normal thing, his or her normal thing. So I'm just going to show you a brief video clip to paint you a picture. This is a control subject. I'll show it just briefly because it's not that fun to watch. You get an idea. Um, I picked out a good example. They're not, they don't all scream, scream that much and don't need extra staff to come in and hold them down, but it does happen more than you might think. Um, there's some people who describe this as a very traumatic experience for kids of this age when a, m- multiple grown-ups come and hold them down. This is an example distraction child. <laughs> He's got a DVD movie right here. This nurse isn't particularly animated, but she does prompt them repeatedly. So that gives you an idea of what the distraction might look like. Um, here are the results. And what, what was, um, I want to point out, first of all, child distress, as you see in the control condition, when we code a child distress every five seconds, if they're crying, screaming, flailing, there's much more, significantly more distress in the control than either of the treatment groups. But what I want you to notice is the difference between these groups, they both have the same letter, B, which indicates there was no significant difference whether you train the child and parent beforehand or just train the nurse. And that might be partly because what you see is the nurse is doing just as much distraction. Well, the nurse, of course, is doing the same amount of distraction. She was trained in both of these conditions. But the parent... Whether the parent is trained or not trained, the parent's engaging in similar levels of distraction, suggesting that the nurse is modeling. The TV might serve as a cue of what parents might do to help, so the training might be unnecessary. These are the rating scales. And so children's report, parent report, and nurse report all provided the same results, which was there was more distress and control, no difference in the two treatments. So the next study, we used an older sample, 9- to 10-year-old, these are pre-adolescents receiving hepatitis vaccines over a year period. They, the three injections are spaced out. And we had, so since there were three injections, we had three different conditions they're serving as within subjects design. And imlecrim at the time, a topical anesthetic, was the, the leading um, pharmaceutical for decreasing pain. And what we found here was, although there's not a lot of distress, there's less distress with distraction than with the topical anesthetic. And if you looked at this in Uh, more detail, you'll notice it might be because the nurse is doing less distraction when the cream is on than when she's um, trained to do distraction. And the nurse said later, when the cream was on there, she thought she didn't need to do anything, which was quite an interesting sort of anecdote 
that might help understand what, some of what happened in this study. Um, finally, I'm going to go quickly through the uh, infant study. So we had 90 infants, and we compared distraction to control. And you might wonder what you would use for distraction for infants and toddlers. And I won't, don't have time to let you guess, but it was the British invasion, the fabulous four, Tinky Winky, <laughs> Dipsy, La La, and Poe. And the results were pretty striking. There's a lot of distress, as you see, in both groups, but there's less distress when they are watching the movie. And the blue bar indicates um, how often they're actually engaged in the movie or pointing at it or making comments about it versus other distraction that might be available. Okay, so now it comes to um, my time here in Bath and trying to make sense of what I've done for years with acute pain and what I've come to Bath to learn about. And while I was studying pain, I was going to pain conferences, and a common presenter, one of the leaders in the field, was Chris, and he was often talking about acceptance and mindfulness, and I might have heard Lance or Kevin or other people, and they were talking about acceptance and mindfulness, which to me, when I heard it, if you had chronic pain, you were kind of noticing it, being aware of your body sensations, and not fighting it, but instead putting your energy into living a meaningful life, being with your friends, going to school. And to me, I was thinking, that seems quite distinct from distraction, almost the opposite in some ways. Rather than ignoring, denying, distracting, you're actually noticing it, being aware of it. And I was trying to make sense of this. Um, So partly, my desire to integrate these two areas and um, learn more about this is the impetus for coming here. I, I was emailing with Kevin, wanting to do a project, and I want to learn more about this chronic pain and whether there might be some way to marry these areas, distraction, which could be reframed as denial, and acceptance, mindfulness, which could be reframed almost as focus, sensory awareness. Okay? So I just want to mention it was a real wise decision coming here. I've already mentioned that some at the beginning, but I've had a wonderful time since I've been here in August. You know, Chris and the lab have been incredibly generous with their data and their expertise, and um, it's just been a great, really productive year for me, and, and I've learned uh, a lot, both in the center as well as down in the Royal Mineral Hospital in my time down there. So here's how I'm trying to integrate it in my mind, what I'm working on, and some ways for future directions. First of all, just looking at acute pains. That's what I've been looking at for years, and I'm still looking at, and hopefully I've provided you some data and maybe convinced you a little bit that for younger or older children, that distraction, and I'm going to put, maybe it could even be called denial, ignoring it, might be effective. It might decrease pain for acute pain. That's a needle, um, lumbar puncture, very brief pain. All right, and here's a series of studies we've done just in this area. Now, acceptance sensory focus, I'm putting those kind of together, But Ed here and some other folks, more with grown-ups, have done some work showing that actually focusing on the pain, you might increase your tolerance. These studies have done more with um, adolescents or college-age, university-age students putting their hands in buckets of cold water and this sort of thing, or with adults. And there is some data to suggest. I didn't put it as low as distraction because uh, that was my bias. (laughs) But there is, and most of these studies have been done with cold presser and not with needles, And the type of distraction is more try to ignore it, suppress it, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, but it wasn't as much as an engaging, exciting, fun movie. So, But there there is some data suggesting it does help, even with acute pain, which is pretty intriguing to me. Now, ignore this dot for a second, and come over here, and we look at chronic pain. And if you think about distraction, denial, and chronic pain, 
I'm putting pain slash disability. I'm kind of merging those together, even though that's maybe not um, kosher in the literature, but I'm going to do that anyway. And distraction denial for older, like adolescents, what, what they do on the unit at Royal Mineral Hospital, um, they have shown in repeated studies, Chris has shown, Kevin, and other folks, that distraction denial, just trying to ignore it, fighting the pain, actually leads to um, higher disability, missing school, spending a lot of energy fighting it. You might be sitting at home and not hanging out with your friends. You might have higher disability. Similarly, acceptance and sensory focus and mindfulness, the data that they're, that's coming out um, from Bath is really strong, and it's showing that, in fact, it's, the children are doing better. They're even having um, less pain when they're... Uh, Accept, they're using acceptance, mindfulness, focusing on important areas of their life rather than spending a lot of energy fighting the pain. So for future work and trying to make sense of this, I'm really curious about how you might look at acceptance and mindfulness and sensory focus with younger patients, both in the acute pain setting. How might that look? Can you do it? And how do you translate some of this work, which is um, very intellectual, very interesting, but it might be difficult how do you have younger kids use mindfulness, use acceptance, both for acute pain or for recurrent or repeated or chronic-like pain conditions in younger children? So that's some areas I'd really like to explore. So I'll end there and say cheers. Thank you. Ten years ago, when we were uh, developing the then pain management unit and expanding it quite radically, we realized that we needed some clinical leadership, we needed to expand, we needed some clinical big guns, if I can put it that way. And I was uh, very pleased at that time to be able to persuade our next speaker, Dr. Lance McCracken, to leave his quite comfortable home, I think, there in Chicago at the time. It was comfy. Uh, to come uh, to Bath and take up the challenge of leading a whole uh, whole arena, whole whole um, new team of um, healthcare professionals dedicated to the management of chronic pain at that time in adults and developing into adolescents as well. And since that time, Lance has, has his reputation has grown, and as you see, he's uh, extremely prolific, produces uh, clear and incisive publications. Um, is, in, is in great demand internationally. In fact, we're pleased to have him in the country this week. <laughs> Um, and his book, uh, Cognitive Behavioral Therapy, or uh, a contextual approach, contextual cognitive behavioral therapy for chronic pain, um, I think it will become one of the uh, a landmark book that shifts the direction in cognitive behavioral therapy and pain. It's been, been extremely well received. So I'm very pleased that he accepted our invitation as part of the Center for Pain Research and one of our principal investigators to present on pain treatment and the science of freedom, courage and compassion. Thanks a lot, Chris. Um, and thanks for coming. Uh, I've deliberately chosen a somewhat uh, provocative title. Um, I, I chose the title, and I thought it would be fantastic. And then I tried to put stuff into the talk to, <laughs> to follow the title, and um, you'll, you'll tell me how I did. Um, I've been here nine years, um, so the work that's... Uh, presented here is, is, is nine years of work here in the UK and about six years worth of work before that. So it's about 15 years worth of uh, trying to make sense of why do people suffer and when they're really stuck in that suffering, how can, you, how can you help them function again 
and uh, return to um, some quality of life uh, like they used to have. So that's been our challenge. I can't do everything today. I'm going to try to do a few things. It's a big topic. Uh, I'm going to go right to the heart of the matter or right to the, to the front edge of what's going on in a sense. Um, uh, I really enjoyed Lindsay's talk. He really laid it out systematically and how his work has, has developed. Um, I won't start in the past and come forward. I'm going to go right to the front, right to what are we up to and um, how can we make sense of, of some of these notions uh, that inform uh, this question. Why do people suffer? So I'm going to describe uh, some recent developments in psychological approaches to chronic pain. I'm going to propose two slightly radical ideas. and One is that um, right thinking is not the answer. Neither is simply distraction or getting it out of your mind, or thinking positive, thinking optimistically. That these kinds of elements that are very common in our, in our sort of day-to-day culture um, and make good sense in many ways, our experience is even that they work. But when people are really suffering, uh, the, the notion I, I propose to you is, th- is that's not the whole answer. Another part of the answer to the question, why do people suffer, is suffering is normal. So I'll try to see if I can make some sense of that. That In some ways, suffering is not a pathological event. It's not an unusual state of uh, human experience. It is, um, it is actually quite ordinary. And once you or normal. And once you look at it that way, you then begin to deal with it in a different way, I think. So after all of that, I'm going to try to suggest that to, to truly undermine uh, deep, uh, stuck, disabling suffering at its root, it's, uh, we're, we're coming to understand that to do that really well and to really get to the bottom of that requires some things that sound curiously old-fashioned, actually, um, and maybe not highly technical but I would suggest that what it requires is a caring attitude and a sense of compassion. It requires a a sense of flexibility in the patient behavior, yes, but in our behavior, possibly even more so. And an ability to sit with suffering. And again, uh, in the patient's hands (laughs) or in the patient's sitting, but in our sitting as well. One of the stories out there in uh, cognitive behavior therapy is the notion that somehow changing thoughts and beliefs is fundamental. The question has been asked recently of cognitive behavioral therapy, do you really need to do that in order to get the results that you get? And without going into all the details of what was done here, is a review paper uh, done uh, recently by a couple psychologists from London. And to get to the bottom line, they suggest that there's little empirical support for the role of cognitive change as causal in symptomatic improvements achieved in CBT. So when people suffer with anxiety disorders or depression or other kinds of behavior disturbance, this this notion that's very easy to understand and hold on to and very easy to disseminate, and that is that it is your beliefs and thoughts that matter and and would warrant change if you're going to function better, that in fact the evidence doesn't suggest that that is true, that that is the way to do it. It opens up a door to suggest that there are other ways that we could do this, and maybe that's not necessary. Along the side of this other provocative notion, suffering is normal, all you have to do is look at the data. Um, 
whether you, you think of suffering in terms of uh, suffering with physical pain or suffering with uh, depression or mood disorders or with anxiety dis disorders, the, uh, the data are, are relatively uh, unequivocal. Chronic pain is very common. All of us will have pain for some, for some period of time, just about. And, and, and many of us will have chronic pain that is lingering. It's a continuing part of our experience. And it, it, it imposes limits on our functioning. In terms of psychological disorders, some of the common ones, depress, depression and anxiety, uh, half of people basically will suffer with these in their, in their life. With data like those, it is hard to, to, um, to defend the notion that depression or anxiety are unusual uh, states of human experience. Notice that these are just diagnosable disorders. This is not all the other forms of work, everyday work stress, relationship discord, the other behavior problems that we all have where we, we don't control what we eat very well, we don't control what we drink very well, um, and, and, and in other ways we don't take care of our health and we suffer emotionally from day-to-day -day experiences and stresses. So, so e even, as, even though we're capturing half the people here, you understand that's, that suffering is all over the place even still. Okay. So what we're, to, to again, get right to the heart of the matter, why, why is this the case? Why does this happen? Um, uh, what's being proposed increasingly these days is that a, a way to understand why human suffering is happening, part of it, is a notion of what we, we might call psychological inflexibility, that this kind of broad process is at the root of things. And what it's about is, is, is how our experience as humans, our experience of having thoughts and images and ability to use language and ability to learn things from verbal and language-based processes, that this kind of learning interacts with other, uh, other influences that could, could, uh, could guide our behavior. And the cognition and the mental life that we live has a way of blocking out our contact with other things that could guide our behavior, uh, our sensory experiences around us. And that it's, it's not just what we think or what we have heard or what we believe that imposes its effects on our behavior and limits our behavior. It is the ways these things interact with our other direct experiences that are not verbally based. Now that sounds very complicated. And I suppose it's meant to sound complicated. It is a little bit of a hard notion to get your head around. Uh, think about it as being about, it's not what we think, it's how the things that we think alter our other day-to-day -day experiences. That's what's critical. Okay. And notice what's in here. These things play their role when it's time for us to keep doing something that's healthy for us and we stop. Or to change a course of action, we can't. We just keep doing the same thing over and over again. And so the notion is if we could understand these notions better, we could reduce suffering better. Okay. A model that brings us some distance toward understanding what we might need to do in treatment to help when psychological inflexibility is the problem would be this model here. I won't go into every facet of it, but there's elements here of acceptance, some, some of what Lindsay was talking about, values, uh, a more, a more a contact with what's going on around us in a present moment, and, a, and a, an ability to take committed action, and to be not, too wrap, not so wrapped up in our thinking and in our mind, in a nutshell, something like that. It's kind of like this. Sometimes we try to solve problems, and our attempts to solve 
our problems create other problems or undermine our more important purposes. And this is something that human beings do very well. We're great problem solvers. But just as an example of something that this model of suffering is pointing to, it's pointing to our, our amazingly persistent ability to try to solve problems that are unsolvable in some ways. And by doing so, to create greater problems or to restrict our functioning. Okay, so where else does this leave us? I'm trying to say that there's uh, courage, uh, compassion, and bravery, and love, and all this in here. What am I talking about? Well, there's something else that's going on. What, see, cognitive behavior therapy is the, sort of probably the dominant uh, uh, approach within clinical psychology these days. What we know is that sometimes it works great. Sometimes it doesn't work very well. Sometimes it works great in studies, but sometimes in everyday practice, it doesn't seem to meet that same level of effectiveness as it does in studies. And so what's going on there? Um, recently, it's been proposed that there's something that happens in the practice of, in the human behavior that is the practice of cognitive behavior therapy, and that is that it drifts off what it needs to do. And this drift is interesting if you look at it in where it comes from. And so the notion is that cognitive behavior therapists, other clinical psychologists too, no doubt, often a shift in doing CBT as it's supposed to be done, they often shift from, from uh, asking people to take action and change their behavior to a mode of talking a lot about changing behavior and, and such like. And that when this happens, it seems like therapy loses its effectiveness. And this arises, this talking about it instead of urging or getting a commitment to doing something different arises because we are humans. We deliver treatment and we're afraid. And we have our distortions. I better not do that. It could make the patient very upset. And these things, our influences on our human behavior become to, come to have an impact on our performance as therapists. So this fellow here, uh, Glenn Waller, goes right to the point. And he says, our biggest single problem in impl implementing CBT is that many clinicians fail to push for behavior change such a, by such methods as exposure or behavioral activation, despite the evidence that these elements of treatment are the most important. And even more simply stated, are being nice to or protective of the patient can worsen the problem. This is what I'm talking about when I say courage is where effective treatment comes from when people are really, really got it bad. It's kind of like this. What if you can't let go? Will that person ever ride their bike without you letting go? Sometimes we need a, this radical act of letting go in order for something good to happen. We're starting to, to take this kind of approach. Other, other uh, researchers and, and us uh, down the hill are starting to look at things like training professionals in bringing these qualities of behavior, awareness, uh, courage, uh, and compassion uh, into their practice for their health and performance and for the health and performance of patients. And this is just one example of a recent study that's taking that, taking that direction, something you, you never thought you would see a book that has the term behaviorism in it and it has the term love in it, all in the same cover. So anyhow, uh, very serious uh, research-based, uh, academically-based approaches to behavior change these days are blending words that have a very radical sound to them and sound, uh, have a sound that we're unused to. Yet we're trying to understand what they mean in technical scientific terms and how to apply them in training. Uh, our, treat, our, 
uh, work down the hill for nine years has culminated in a recent uh, a treatment study. This is something that Kevin Vowles and I did, just to point to where we are on the data and science side of things too, and research using these principles of, I would call them courage com and compassion, are actually helping people significantly. The effect sizes are qu quite good for the type of work we're doing, and uh, large proportions of people get better, even if they've suffered for a long, long time very badly. All right, and there's other studies along these same lines. We can point to six or seven uh, studies. Various qualities in the design, but the, but the conclusions are similar. And that is if you bring these qualities of helping patients to be flexible, to bring acceptance and awareness to their experience, instead of trying to change or wrestle with or problem solve their experiences, their lives will be better. And finally, a little bit of a summary. I, I really have sort of fused together um, a few uh, notions here, some of which um, may be hard to immediately uh, chew on. But the notion that I'm trying to point to is that clinical psychology is advancing and it's really tackling some of the big issues in human experience and human interaction and human relationship. Uh, treatment is a relationship. All treatment is a relationship of some quality or other. Uh, all suffering happens in a community. Um, human suffering is complex because of our ability to imagine and think things and construct realities that aren't even present. And uh, our, our methods of treatment need to understand some of these complexities and some of the social nature of suffering and utilize the relationships that we have to utilize therapeutically so that the result we get is a good one. Suffering is normal. Some things need to be accepted. Hard pill to swallow, no pun intended. Anyhow, thank you very much. That's our tidy little hospital downtown. Thanks very much. I'm particularly pleased to um, have uh, Dr. Candy McCabe with us. In many ways, um, uh, the fact that Candy's here is what I think of as is all of the, the good things in, in British pain science. Uh, Candy McCabe is a senior lecturer in the School for Health at the University of Bath and a consultant um, nurse at the um, Royal National Hospital for Rheumatic Diseases uh, from the Arthritis Research Council, a consultant nurse in rheumatology. Um, she's somebody with a, a strong track record and experience uh, with patients. And she's somebody who understands, I think, and I don't mind embarrassing her, the patient experience and what it takes to deliver high-quality care. But what she did with that was to identify that it was a path that she wanted to follow to develop the research. And I think you'll see that everything that comes on from her research is patient-based. She really understands what's going on at that level. So, and, and I won't embarrass her further in terms of I knowing uh, where her career is going. I think in many ways she's very senior. In other ways, it's only just beginning. And I'm pleased that we're able to um, uh, have her as a strong part of the Centre for Pain Research in Bath. And Candy's going to present on pain and the integration of the sensory motor matrix. Thank you. Thank you, Chris. I came dressed for the weather and not for the equipment, so I apologise. I have to hold two things, and I hope I pressed the right thing at the right time. Um, as Chris explained, this is very much clinical research, um, and our research has been based from listening to patient stories. Uh, it's also very much a multidisciplinary team, just as Lance and Lindsay have talked about their teams. 
So I thought we'd look at our sort of traditional models of pain initially. And going back to Lindsay's lovely presentation, this is pretty much our traditional model of pain. This is how we are taught as children that we can fully expect that this young child, because he's grazed his knee, because he's expressing all the emotions of pain, he will get a tremendous amount of sympathy. His mother or father will scoop him up and, and sort out that problem. And that's what we expect. We expect an injury, you get attention, and it heals. We also know that it gives a lot of suffering to those who also care for that person in pain or having to look after them. And this child who has earache, it actually looks pretty distressing for this little baby too. And we know as well all that Lance talked about, the suffering components of pain. We also know, and I'm really quite frightened by the members, the number of people within the Centre of Pain Research who run and the amount of pain that they deliberately inflict on themselves. But that's something that is considered normal daily, daily practice and not something we'd be unduly concerned about. So these are our traditional models of pain. But what I want to talk to you is about perhaps a model that we don't think about very often. And the fact that our brains in themselves can generate pain and a whole range of other sensations. And the problem is that as soon as you move into thinking in this area, people think you're making it up. And that's the very first thing patients will say to me when any of our teams say, actually, we think it's your brain that's creating these problems. This frightened look will cross their eyes and they'll say, you're telling me exactly what everybody else has told me, that this is all in my head. And it is, and I just want to show you how. So we come across lots of conditions where they don't fit into those nice, neat models of pain that I showed you at the beginning. And I'm just going to give you a little quick overview of the sorts of conditions that we would see, some down at the Mineral Hospital, others that we have worked with colleagues with. So the first of these is a, a really chronic, grotty condition called fibromyalgia, commonly happens in middle-aged women, and they will report widespread chronic pain. Interestingly, being, being medical people, we always need to have a, a sort of very clear diagnosis of this. And bizarrely, if you touch these people in particular areas, they are exquisitely tender. But funnily enough, if you touch them between those areas, they're pretty tender too. But anyway, this is how we come up with this diagnostic criteria. You tick a number of tender points. But also they explain that actually they feel their temperature changes quite a lot. They're not always aware of where their limbs are. They're very tired. Their sleep is very poor. But you look at them, and you sort of feel if you took their whole body apart, you could find nothing particularly wrong with them. Chronic low back pain. High incidence of this problem. And yet, quite often, you can do the most detailed radiographic examinations, and you'll find nothing down here. Or you may find a minor change on an x-ray, which really doesn't explain the disability this patient is complaining of, this chronic, unremitting pain, which is ruining their lives. And again, people start to think, is this all in my head? We run a um, national referral centre for people with, a, a, luckily, a very rare condition called complex regional pain syndrome. And this is a condition that can arise from trauma or spontaneously. And patients report and present with a really very inflamed limb, uh, usually a hand, or as you can see here, a whole leg. 
and it changes colour, it becomes hot, it becomes sweaty, you can get changes in the hair and the nail growth. And we can objectively see differences in the temperature of these limbs. Fortunately, the majority of these people will recover spontaneously, but sadly there is a few percent who will continue to get chronic long-term deformities. But again, it's very difficult to understand why these people continue to feel pain in something which actually there's no good cause for that pain and these other symptoms to have started from. And I suspect the one we're probably more familiar with is phantom limb pain. And it really wasn't that many years ago before these people would be put in institutions because they were describing things that the medics just could not explain. This gentleman here, who you can see actually has no right arm, and yet his perception is that he still has a hand, but there's a gap between the two. There's this chronic, unremitting pain of a limb that just doesn't exist. How can that be? So what we've commonly thought, and sadly still happens, is actually all these people are mad. <coughs> They're making it up. But it's very strange that you can get people who come in your clinic, describe these symptoms, and actually they're all saying the same thing. There's a commonality of symptoms across these conditions. And they don't know each other. They haven't all sat in the waiting room and said, well, so what should we tell her today? But, so it's the commonality in these conditions that we have to tease out to try and work out quite what's going on. What they all have is a disturbance in their sensory perceptions, the things that they feel. So they may feel that a limb is very hot, very large, or perhaps non-existent, or very small. And if you touch these people, they may feel that the touch is excessively painful or perhaps numb. So they don't feel sensations as you or I would. They also have problems with their movement. Have any of you been to Swindon recently? This is the Swindon Rotary, which I think is the greatest example of disturbed motor planning that I've ever seen. But these people will struggle to move their painful limbs. They won't know where they are, shut their eyes and they lose them. They go to try to move them and they'll start a tremor. Fibromyalgia patients report they go to peg out their washing and they miss the washing line because they're really not sure where those limbs are. So that made us think about what happens between your sensory and your motor systems, how they have to talk to each other. Is there a disruption? between how these are working in these particular patients. And all of you walked into this room and have sat there. And you probably didn't have to think as you walked across that room, how am I going to put one foot in front of the other? How am I going to sit down? You knew that that was your destination and you went. And you managed to do this probably in a fairly smooth, coordinated manner. Perhaps later after a glass of wine or two, you may be a little less smooth and coordinated but generally, for our safety, these two systems, your sensory and your motor, have to talk to each other, clearly. So, how do we plan a movement? Before we do anything, we rely on our sensory information. So, all of you, when you get up from your seats, you'll look around, you'll look to see where the steps are as you walk down, you'll be using your eyes, your ears, your touch, all of those senses to tell you where, where it's safe to move to. You will also have some internal representations of what your body looks like. And there's sensory and motor maps within your brain which give a representation of your body. 
But you also have another map within your thalamus. Parietal cortex has yet other maps. We have a series of little different maps in our body that are constantly giving us information about where we are in space. We also rely heavily on previous experience. And this is particularly where um, Lance and Ed's work and, and those of the other clinical psychologists that work with us is, is really important. How can we modify these expectations? But previous experience will tell you that actually it's usually safe to get up from one of these lecture chairs to walk across a room. You'd be confident about that. So you actually perform that movement and you'll get feedback to all these areas. This map will be updated so that you know where your limbs are now. You'll have looked in the new location and found out what these sensory experiences are. And you'll have updated that into your previous experience now model. But actually, perhaps what you're less aware of is that you will also get some feedback into your fright and flight mechanism, your autonomic arousal. And that will perhaps change your heart rate and the rate that you're breathing at, how you're sweating. And that's really important. And that's quite a crucial difference for our patients too, something we need to be aware of, that planning movements, performing those movements, instantly gives you feedback here, because it's your safety mechanism. It's your fright and flight. So if as you open that door, something scary was on the other side, you need to be ready to have an increased heart rate for that greater activity. But intriguingly, you can activate all those systems without actually going anywhere. And I want to give you a little example. So our chair, Professor Chris Eccleston, as he sits there and his mind wanders to perhaps that alter ego. And if he could really convince himself that he is the other Chris Eccleston with his sonic screwdriver leaving the TARDIS, you'd find that actually, as he did, as he imagined those activities, you would see activity within his brain that was almost exactly the same as if he performed it. And if he found something very scary on the other side of the TARDIS, so if that Dalek was there, you would notice that in his imagination, even as he imagined it, his autonomic nervous system would be upregulated. He would sweat more, his heart rate would go up more, and yet he hasn't moved anywhere, he hasn't seen anything. He's completely created it within his own brain. So that is all in the head, but it's all perfectly possible and completely sensible. So at times we get it wrong. Our sensory and our motor system doesn't always work together. So what happens in humans, and luckily this, this horse survived, so all was fine. So we tried to create this within a laboratory setting to see what happens in humans when things don't quite go right, when your sensory and your motor systems don't talk to each other. And so here you can see a colleague of mine who's looking into a large mirror, and she's got both hands either side, and she just simply moves them up and down in the same manner. And as she looks in the mirror here, her motor system, the one that's telling her about her movement, is telling her that both arms are going up and down. And in fact, her sensory system, because she's seeing in the mirror, tells her both arms are going up and down. And the two match quite happily. But then here, she performs incongruent movements. And as she does that, her motor and her sensory systems are now no longer matching. And when they don't match, 
because they're such important systems, you need to be told about it. You have to be alerted. So the way that you're alerted is that you start to generate some quite unpleasant sensations in this limb, the one you can't see. So when you go home tonight, open up those wardrobe tables and all have a play. Because what you'll find is that about two-thirds of you really don't like this very much. There's some of you who I suspect could do this back and forth for quite a long time, wouldn't be particularly bothered. But some of you will find that actually this hand here starts to feel a little bit warmer or a little bit colder. So you have started to light up your autonomic nervous system. You'll also perhaps find that this limb starts to feel a bit bigger or a bit smaller, or in fact very light or very heavy. So you can change your perception of that limb that's hidden. You'll also find that maybe it becomes so light it sort of disappears, becomes very floaty, or it becomes very stiff and heavy. And for a few of you, you'll find that actually it's really pretty painful. It's really quite uncomfortable, and you don't wish to carry on. And we had three people out of the 42 fit, healthy volunteers that we put through this experiment who didn't wish to do this for 20 seconds. 20 seconds is a really short time. And many of you will find that actually it really makes you feel a bit peculiar and it's not terribly pleasant. So we know from that that by disrupting the sensory and the motor systems, we can cause quite an array of different sensations. And there's been a lot of other excellent research showing similar sorts of things. So this one here, you can, if you make a limb or a, a painful area smaller or you make it larger, then you can increase or diminish the amount of pain that somebody feels. You can also, interestingly, have an effect on the autonomic nervous system. So you can change the size of that limb, the swelling that's associated with that pain. And if you make it look really small and ridiculously not yours at all, then you disown it. It just doesn't belong to you because it doesn't fit in within that nice body map, that model that we all have. If we make it much larger, then we'll feel things more acutely on that area so we can increase our sensation. And we've shown that if we do this same disruption of sensory and motor systems in people with pain already, so in those fibromyalgia patients that I talked to you about at the beginning, we actually make their pain much worse. We increase their fibromyalgia-specific sensations. So what's all this got to do with therapy? Why is it helpful? Well, if, if we perhaps assume, and this is a big assumption, that some of the patient's problems that we see are due to this mismatch between sensory and motor systems, then perhaps what we should be looking at is what problems do they have in those sensory and those motor areas? How can we correct that? And so the first work in this area was done by um, Professor Ramachandran based in California. And what he did, he took upper limb amputees, and you can see this gentleman here has no right limb. But by giving him a mirror visual trick, he now has two limbs. And in amputees, this really is a very successful treatment for helping phantom limbs be able to move, to reduce that perception of stiffness. And long-term mirror visual treatment can indeed alleviate and possibly remove that phantom pain. That's a dramatic advance. And in fact, we've cared for somebody who 60 years after an amputation in the war had dramatic benefit from this. 
it's very difficult to understand how that can work. We use it for those patients with complex regional pain syndrome and have also shown that in some patients, if we hide their affected limb behind here, so they now perceive they have two normal-looking limbs, we again can diminish their pain and improve their movement. So other ways that perhaps we can start to work on motor and sensory integration, we can get people to rehearse those imagined movements because, as we showed with the example with Chris, you're activating all the same areas, but you're not actually performing that movement. So it's quite a safe way to practice, soften up your motor planning system. We also know that by improving people's sensation, their sensory discrimination, how they can tell what you're touching them with, then we can do that through either um, simple means of giving them different textures to feel or through electrical stimulation, getting people to discriminate between different impulses. We can find that actually that reduces pain very effectively in amputees and we're just starting it in complex regional pain syndrome and there seems to be some work in chronic back pain too. And we also know that multidisciplinary rehabilitation, where you're involved in hydrotherapy, physiotherapy, occupational therapy, having to use your limbs a lot, also improves pain. So just to summarise, it actually is all in your head. In the same manner that we see with our brains, we hear with our brains, we can generate a whole range of unpleasant sensations in our brains. We can manipulate sensory and motor output and input to either increase or decrease pain and other sensations. Therefore, it's really important that we assess any problems in these areas to see what we should target for our treatments. And it's probably, just as Lance was saying, we probably don't have a one-size-fit-all therapy. They need to be very individualised, which is why assessments tend to take quite a long time and why specific individualised care plans need to be done for these patients. And we need to do this much better. We need to find subsets of these populations. And that takes a lot of time, a lot of data collection. Thank you very much. For our, our last presentation of the day, I'd like to introduce Dr. Edmund Keogh. He was a senior lecturer in the Department of Psychology here at Bath, and we recruited him, I think, I can't remember now, is it six, six or seven years ago? Six. Six years ago, um, when we uh, plucked him out of Goldsmiths. And I have to admit that we were shameless in our attempts to persuade him that London was no place for serious people and that he really needed to become part of a, the growing empire, if you like, and a growing um, activity in pain research. But Ed characterizes uh, what's strong about the Center for Pain Research and its principles in that uh, when I asked him to present, he said, what would you like me to present on? Because he's not only an expert in uh, gender and sex differences in pain, he's also an expert in anxiety processes in pain and in face processing in pain. But I asked him to talk about this because I thought it would be appealing to the audience and he stepped up to the mark. So, Ed, sex matters in pain. Thank you very much and uh, thank you for the kind words and obviously the opportunity to talk to you about this, this topic, which I, I have to warn you I feel very passionate about. And I think that's something that's shared with, I think, all the speakers you've heard today. There's a great passion within the Centre for Pain Research, very passionate about what we have to say. 
Um, what I'm going to be doing today is, is really talking about one area that's, that's certainly gripped me for, I think, about 10 years now, and that is the potential for differences between men and women in the experience of pain. I'm going to attempt some audience participation now. I'd like a brief show of hands. Who thinks men suffer from pain more than women? Who thinks the other way round? A few more there. And who's not sure? <laughs> okay. Well, hopefully we'll address this and answer some of those, some of those points. Um, what I'm going to be doing is I'll, I'll start off talking about some of the evidence base. Is there actually an evidence base for sex differences in pain? Um, yes, is the answer, but I'll try and persuade you that there's some good evidence out there. And really what I want to do is, is once I've demonstrated there are these differences, is really think about the reasons why. And I think that's really the research sort of questions that I'm most interested in. It's not so much are there any differences, but why are there differences? And as you'll see from the research I'm presenting, it very much focuses on the more sort of psychological side of things, which I think is actually quite unique for this particular area, because most of the research tends to look at the more sort of neurological, biological, hormonal factors, and not so much on the psychological side of things. So starting off then, are there sex differences in pain? The answer is yes, but here's the evidence. So if we just look at the number of pain conditions that are out there, and we think about these pain conditions, and we look at who's suffering, and we look at whether or not men are suffering more with certain conditions in comparison to women, or the other way around, what you tend to find is that when you look at these clinical pain conditions, there seems to be more of these conditions where there's a greater female prevalence. In other words, there are conditions out there that seem to affect women more than men. If you add these up, there are far more of these sorts of conditions in comparison to those that men seem to suffer from and pre predominantly uh, show a higher prevalence rate. So conditions such as fibromyalgia and a number of other conditions show much higher female prevalence. It's not just in the clinic. We can actually get healthy individuals into the laboratory. And we can use pain induction methodologies. As we can get healthy people into the lab, we heard about cold buckets of water, which is one of our favourites. We get a cold bucket of ice water, you dunk your arm in it, and you say, how much pain is that? How much pain am I feeling? You can measure how long people stand the pain. What's their threshold for pain? What's their tolerance for pain? And we again look at whether there are differences between men and women. And here again, yes, you do see these differences. On average, what seems to occur is that women show a sort of higher sensitivity to pain in comparison to men. So there's good clinical work and good laboratory work, which seems to certainly suggest that there are important individual differences based upon the sex of the person. On average, it seems that women are suffering more. They suffer more pain, more regularly, greater incident rates with greater intensity. There are differences in the locations which pains, pains occur. And again, you see some sort of sex bias occurring there. And there's at least a number of studies which suggest that, the, that women, for example, show sort of greater pain within the head and face and abdominal regions. And there are other individual differences. Across the lifespan, we can think of how pain is experienced. And again, age is important. We've already heard this, Chris mentioned this earlier. But when we look at sex differences in pain, we see an interesting finding, which is these sex differences seem to occur mostly during the reproductive years. So from 16 plus on to a sort of menopause sort of region. 
So there's a suggestion that perhaps it's something linked to sex hormones, for example, which may explain some of these effects. So you see, there's a good evidence base out there that certainly suggests that there are these differences. It's not just in terms of pain experiences, but also what we do about pain as well. We can look at who uses healthcare services. And generally what we find is actually women use more healthcare services in comparison to men, and that's the same for pain services as well. We can ask men and women, over the past week, over the past month, have you taken any sort of analgesic medication? As you can see, for both prescription and non-prescription medications, analgesics, there's a higher proportion of women saying that they have taken these drugs in comparison to men. As psychologists, we like asking people, how do you cope with things? And again, we can do the same sort of thing. We can ask men and women, how do you cope with pain? Are there different behaviour patterns that are being reported by male men and women in terms of how they cope with pain? And here you can see there's some good evidence that suggests that there are differences. And so also some differences in the type of strategy that may be used to deal with pain experiences. There are also some very sort of recently, some sort of quite nice studies that have actually looked at whether or not men and women respond in different ways to pain interventions. And traditionally, when you're talking about interventions, you talk about the sort of drug-based studies and the non whoops, the non drug studies. And again, the, the sort of, most of the research here has really been on the more sort of pharmacological side of things, but looking at whether or not men and women respond in different ways to drugs, to analgesic drugs. Evidence is mixed. There, are certainly some, there is some evidence out there. There are differences, but the direction of those differences sort of varies from drug type to, and from study to study, whether you talk about chronic or acute conditions. And one of the problems is, is that drugs often have side effects. And again, when we're looking at side effects, actually interestingly, what you're seeing here also are differences between the sexes. There are differences in terms of sensitivity to certain analgesic-based drugs. There are differences in terms of the sort of negative responses or side effects that occur as a consequence of analgesic drugs. Again, it's mixed evidence, but it's pointing towards the suggestion there may be differences between the sexes. In terms of the sort of non-pharmacological interventions, we've conducted sort of basic lab-based studies, some of which you've heard earlier, in which we just ask people to sort of think about the pain, cope with it in slightly different ways, to see whether or not coping with pain using a distraction technique is better for men in comparison to women than using, say, for example, a focusing on the pain technique. And again, yes, we do see some sort of differences there, different strategies being more beneficial for one sex in comparison to the other. It's not just limited to the lab, but also the clinic as well. And we can look at treatment outcome to interdisciplinary pain management interventions, such as the ones conducted here in Bath. And one study here, which, which we sort of published in 2005, looks at whether or not men and women did differ in terms of outcomes associated with pain management interventions. And yes, there were some differences in terms of pain experiences, distress, etc., but not in terms of disability. So again, there are some sort of indication that there may be differences between the sexes, not just in terms of conditions, but also what we do about it and the way in which we respond to pain. So you know, the next question is, that hopefully I've convinced you there's at least some evidence out there. Maybe a bit mixed, but certainly there's some evidence out there that there are these sort of differences. The next question is, well, does it actually matter? 
I think so. Yes, it does matter, because if there are differences in the way in which we actually respond to pain interventions, does that mean we need to start thinking about sex-specific interventions? That's a bit of a, a jump, but that's one of the natural, sort of, um, sort of leaps, natural conclusions you could draw. It's too early to say this now. It's too early to actually make that conclusion or suggest this. We certainly would not advocate sex-specific interventions yet, mainly because the research out there is just not good enough. We don't know. We don't, haven't got the information. One of the reasons for this is because there's a research bias within a lot of published research. And that is, on the whole, um, especially over, you know, the, in the past sort of 20, 30, until the past sort of 10 years, 20, 30 years ago, women were actually excluded from a number of clinical trials. And so you have a number of interventions that have been conducted just on men, and women have been excluded. So the conclusions you draw, you could argue, will not necessarily generalise to both sexes. And you can see there are sort of issues recently in the UK which still highlight this sort of potential for bias. Um, there have been a group of researchers that have, uh, sorry, that have looked at uh, you know, wh wh how, how we're actually doing this sort of research and have actually suggested ways in which we can try and stimulate the research areas and actually answer some of these questions. And last year, we were actually involved in an international campaign. The International Association for the Study of Pain was, you know, thought this was an important issue. And in fact, their whole global campaign for that particular year was dedicated to pain in women and, and raising awareness about not only the fact there are differences between the sexes, but there are differences in treatment accessibility between the sexes, women on the whole not accessing globally pain interventions as much as males. And there are fact sheets and translating a whole different series of languages, again, highlighting this is a global issue. So we're, you know, obviously there are a lot of people taking this seriously. So there's, it's an important issue. There are differences. It's an important issue. And as I said, you know, I think for myself, the, the burning issues are really linked to why are there these differences? Traditionally, we tend to think of, a, think of health and healthcare in terms of a biopsychosocial model. And certainly when it comes to individual differences, sex differences in pain, we see these sort of biological and psychosocial issues cropping up as potential mechanisms of explanations for these differences. There's a lot of research, good research that's looked at some of the biological factors that might actually underpin some of these differences between the sexes. And in particular, sex hormone factors have been proposed as particularly important in explaining some of these differences. But the research that we've been conducting here in Bath has focused much more on the psychosocial side of things. Perhaps as psychologists, we're more, clearly much more naturally drawn towards thinking about feelings, thinking about thinking, and thinking about the way in which we engage with each other. So really what I'm going to do is sort of present some suggestions as to potential mechanisms, psychosocial mechanisms, also illustrate some of the research we've been doing here in Bath. So as psychologists, we like to talk about feelings. We've heard about this already. So, and unfortunately, as psychologists, we tend to focus on the more sort of negative emotions, not so much the positive ones, although we've obviously heard earlier today that we're starting to branch out into areas such as love and compassion. But as traditional psychologists, we've been interested in depression and anxiety. And again, if you look at depression and anxiety as a potential mechanism or look at it as a potential issue that may explain some of the differences between men and women, again, you do see sort of slightly different patterns emerging. 
So when we talk about the relationship between depression and pain and pain-related disability, yes, they are related. So the more depressed you become, you know, it seems to be associated with a higher level of pain experience, higher level of disability. And what we've actually shown is that this relationship may be particularly strong in women in comparison to men. That's not to say that men don't get depressed and that leads to high disability, but the relationship seems to be slightly stronger in women in comparison to men. When you talk about pain anxiety, you sort of get the opposite pattern emerging. So on the whole, what you tend to find is that anxiety seems to be quite strongly related to pain in, in men in comparison to women. There is an exception to this. Unfortunately, the research that I've done <laughs> does sort of indicate it in a slightly different direction if you think about panic-related anxiety, and in particular the fear of anxiety-related sensations, cardiovascular activity, respiration, etc. We get some slightly different patterns emerging. But on the whole, what it's suggesting is the way in which men and women actually feel may be slightly different, and this may be slightly differently related to pain experiences. As well as feelings, we like to think about thinking, cognition, pain beliefs. And here we can sort of think about thinking. And one of the, I think, fairly sort of, sort of important areas that's emerged over the past 10, 20 years has been the, has been the role of catastrophizing, which is the process of negative rumination and worries, of worrying about the pain. And again, this, this sort of thought process... Has, has, has cropped up within the individual differences literature as well, within the sex differences area, in terms of explaining some of the differences in pain experiences. In addition to catastrophizing, we can also think about uh, the, the gender roles that we have. So if we think about how does the typical man behave and how does the typical woman behave, these are... Um, societal learnt roles, if you like. So these are the sort of expectations we have about men and women. So if you ask people, what do you think about, how do you think men and women cope with pain? What's the sort of pain experiences you'll see in a typical man in comparison to a typical woman? You tend to find this sort of pattern, that we generally believe women are more sensitive, men are less willing to report pain. And there may be something in that, but it's, it's more of a, a belief, a thought process that we have. And what's important is that these thought processes, again, help explain your own pain sensitivity and some of the differences between the sexes. In addition, these thoughts about how men and women respond to pain can be manipulated, so we can change them, and we can change, and we can reduce or remove these sex differences in pain experience by changing the way in which people think about their own gender, gender roles. Finally, I'd like to talk about the way in which we interact with each other. So it's not just you know, the thoughts and feelings we have, but what we do with each other may be important, how we interact with each other. And the social context is important. And there's some, some really nice studies. I mean, one in particular that, that, that's, that's often cited is manipulating the social context. In this, this nice study here, there was a, a, an experimental lab-based study set up in which the experimenter was varied in terms of whether they were male or female. The participants in the study were also male and female. And there's an important interaction between the, between the person who is participating in the pain study as well as the experiment. And I'll try and get this right. So if the, if the participant was male and the experimenter was female, then the participant reported less pain. 
Hopefully that makes sense. And you actually, there was some evidence that it went the other way around as well. But important interaction effects between not just your pain experience, but the fact they don't happen in isolation. You're talking to other people about them. And we sort of followed this up and you know, looked, published a study which looked at the roles that birth partners have on mothers' pain experiences during an elective caesarean section and looking at the pain experiences following the event. What we found here, again, you have important interactions. Pain doesn't occur in isolation. It's a social event, if you like. In that birth partners' anxiety levels were important predictors of mother's post-operative pain experiences. What I haven't told you is the birth partners' anxiety experiences during the event which were predicting pain following the event. Which I think you know, shows the sign that there's important interactions that are going on there. And as Chris mentioned earlier, what we're sort of moving on to is looking in a bit more detail at the sort of verbal and non-verbal behaviours that are going on between individuals. And certainly some nice research out there that's looked at the behavioural interactions between spouses, one of which may be in pain or not. And recently we started looking at facial expressions, the sort of expressions you exhibit when you're in pain and how they're interpreted by somebody else. You go and help somebody. How do you do that? How do you know they're in pain? You look at them. You, look at, you hear what they say. How, what, um, but also how they're expressing themselves through these sort of non-verbal cues. They're facial expressions. So hopefully what I've convinced you is there's some nice evidence out there to suggest there are sex differences in pain. They do exist. Certainly there are all these various different factors that we need to take into consideration. So my next job, I hope for the next 10, 20 years, is to try and unpick some of these and start thinking about what are the important interactions? What are the important mechanisms? How do they interact to help us explain some of these differences? And it's only by understanding these mechanisms that we can actually start thinking about what to actually do about it. Thank you.